Welcome to Thinking Ahead. I'm your host, Carter Phipps, and we're exploring the movements, trends, people, and ideas that are shaping our evolving world. Make sure you subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform, and most of all, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Regular listeners to this podcast, or those who have followed my work over the years, will recognize the name of Steve McIntosh. Steve and I have been collaborating for many years now, probably 15, maybe more, in various ways. We are co-authors of the 2020 book, Conscious Leadership, along with John Mackey, and we are co-founders of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. He is also a regular guest on this podcast, and I'm happy to welcome him back for another discussion. In this episode, we focus primarily on a recent article he wrote called The Politics of Pride and Shame, Integrating 1776 and 1619. Let's welcome Steve McIntosh to another edition of Thinking Ahead. All right, Steve, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Carter. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Yeah, it's great to do this. We it's been I, I think it's been about nine months since we've we've done this together, and I, I feel like that's really too long. We should try to kind of do these a little more often uh, because you you're in the midst of doing a lot of writing and work, and I've done some writing in between. And it'd be great to be able to talk about those articles that we're sharing and writing, and also just to kind of catch up on current events and look at some of the current events through through an integral political perspective and the developmental perspective that we're developing at the Institute for Cultural Evolution. So it'd be great to do this, you know, at least once every six months. So it's, anyway, it's good to get you on and it's good to, to talk about some of your latest work. Great. Uh, again, um, you and I always have good chemistry in our discussions. And so uh, I always look forward to it. And, and absolutely, let's do this more often. All right. So as we were talking about uh, before the, we, I hit record, you're, uh, you, you have a new article. It's called The Politic, or new, relatively new. About I think it came out about a month ago. It's called The Politics of Pride and Shame, Integrating 1776 and 1619. So we're going to start off by talking about that. And as we said, the, before, uh, before uh, we started, you know, hit record, our goal is to see if we can get you canceled on this interview. This is, this is a unique uh, – I'm excited about this. Uh, I don't know, but may we all be famous enough to, to get canceled, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, tell me about the article. Tell me what inspired it. Uh, I thought it was one of your, one, you know, one of your great, uh, one, a great article, really, one of the best you've written, uh, really interesting and such an important topic right now. So tell me what inspired it. Sure. Well, a, a lot of it uh, has to do with the, the sort of the larger arc of my thinking, uh, which is to help bring about a synthesis, a cultural synthesis in American uh uh, the American society, where the, the 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 larger existential problem of the culture war uh, isn't just you know solved by some uh, magic wave of a wand, but that we we come to recognize how we're we're the country's being pulled apart in various directions, partially as a result of our cultural evolution, as a result of our growth, uh, you know, yeah. good growth as a society, but of course, gro- of course, growth growth brings problems. And so we're now experiencing the result of being stretched out as a cu- culture through part of it growing and part of it not 
uh, such that it's becoming increasingly an ungovernable entity. So the idea that growth has gotten us into this predicament and growth can get us out of it, right? We can grow our way, um, maybe not uh, in one lockstep um, social cohesion, but in the same way that that what we've talked about in previous uh, podcasts as this progressive postmodern worldview, right? Yes. In other words, we 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 have a, a sort of theoretical palette of think of concepts that we've developed that are key for un, unpacking what we're about. And part of that, and, and, I'll, and I'll say that yeah. background is really in our previous, you know, previous calls. If people want to listen to those previous podcasts, they can go back and really get a lot of the background for for this conversation. So we don't have to go too deep into that. But yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. But the yeah. two key concepts that I can just yeah. flag: one Absolutely, is yeah. worldview evolution, right? These these major worldviews, and then also um, uh, the dynamics of polarity in values and things that create values. So, so right. the, 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 you know, we've talked about that extensively. So the, the polarity and the worldviews are important to, to discuss the synthesis, this yearning for synthesis, this yearning for the next step um, yeah. beyond progressive postmodernism. I mean, you know, that's not the end of history. It's emerged over the last 50 years. It's brought very important things. It's also disrupted, uh, you know, the national polity for good and bad. And so, uh, that signals either um, a pending regression or you know something worse, or obviously it creates the, um, the the evolutionary restlessness, the problematic life conditions that point to the possibility of a next step, uh, and that next step does what progressive postmodernism can't, and that is it better includes the whole. It can include the best right. of what's come before, right? So, so this this overarching theme of synthesis and and not just as a cultural movement but as a way of thinking right in other yeah. words that that is being able to hold two truths at the same time you know that sounds pretty simplistic but it's actually yeah. quite difficult for people to yes. do especially in the realm of culture right there's these magnetic forces that pull them to one side or the other you know these are the same magnetic forces are responsible for our polarization Right? And these yeah. magnetic forces are caught up in this internal realm of value, which has, uh, uh, again, strong magnetic uh, uh, currents in different directions, different concepts of what counts as transcendence. Right. So this is all philosophical and abstract to make it concrete. Yeah. One of the things that uh, that motivates me as a proponent of cultural synthesis is a revaloration or or a reappreciation of the best of what's come before without yes. you know becoming kind of drawn into a conservative uh, reactionary stance that that is is discomfited by every new development. So yes. so we want we want to be able to recognize the ongoing importance uh, of the foundational values and achievements of uh, America's past. We yes. want to embrace you know the challenges of the progressive postmodern present. And we want to hold those two truths at once until they are able to yield a growth into a third thing, which is the synthesis. So, so sympathy for modernity, sympathy for, you know, the, the economic, individualistic, scientific system of the West, right, that's emerged yes. in uh, Europe and America is, is one of the most kind of concrete um, political objectives that are at least necessary to lay the groundwork for the synthetic growth we need, right? So much of the growth that we experienced as a uh, as a culture, let's just talk about America for the moment, 
um, has yeah. come from the emergence of progressive postmodern values and their questioning of the unsustainability and um, you know pathologies of, of the previous establishment. And so, and, like over the last fifty years, environmental, yeah, social years. <laughs> justice, the the meaning crisis, you know, getting beyond materialism, all those have been you know important in the evolution of American culture over the last years, and recognizing there's a we need to move forward. We need to right. continue to grow. We need to not get lost in some of the downsides of modernity and materialism and all that. And yet we've come to an interesting point in that, in that, in that process. Right. So, so progressive postmodernism made much of its evolution or its cultural growth by taking a stance of uh, a rejectionism, right? The hermeneutics of suspicion, this kind of uh, questioning or, or the, the, um, the attempt to everything, everything that was sacred in the past, making that ironic and even yes. right. And and right. this was as a necessary, you know, again, it's a little bit cliche to put it in these terms, but it's very much like uh, the, the, the individual path of a person as they become a teenager, they get cynical about their parents, right? They see them with a yeah. eye and that's a necessary step of differentiation yeah. Uh, for, for people who come from healthy families, most of them at some point in their 20s, perhaps late 20s, they begin <laughs> to get past the vilification or the, you know, the, the one sided view of their family that was necessary for them to, you know, push off and differentiate and become their own. And they begin yes. to realize that, OK, well, they're still part of that family and that that there are beautiful things that they should honor right about their family and their parents despite their shortcomings and uh you know the the mistakes they made in parenting etc so yeah despite the the history of their in that sense the history of their individual selves and their and the where they come from but you really see like these battlegrounds these worldview battles get played out in how we interpret history right they they get played out in how we see the very fact of history and for when I grew up, there was a, you know, there was some relative synthesis, you know, uh, around how we saw the history of America. But that's not true anymore, as you as you talk about. Sure. Well, so so the, the progressivism, you know, has grown and it continues to grow. It's doubling down on the what we might call the antithesis, right? The rejection, the 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 um, the vilification, right? The one sided jaundiced eye that sees modernity merely for its environmental degradation, its complicity in colonialism, its, you know, its nuclear proliferation, all of the negatives of modernity are, you know, come to the fore and are viewed most prominently by most progressive postmodernists. And of course, you and I are emerging out of progressive postmodern culture. In other words, we, we've been, we come to know each other in a a postmodern cultural context, and Mm -hmm. we have been, um, working together now for, um, you know, coming on close to 20 years yeah. in this larger telos of, of wanting to, to be, to participate in the emergence of this next step, which is the synthesis. So we have to revalorize modernity. And a lot of that comes from the current battle over the interpretation of history, which is uh, very yes. important. It's not just an academic uh, uh, uh quarrel it's it's really yes. it forms a foundation not only of where how we see who we are today but it also in a sense uh it, it lays the groundwork for the possibilities of further growth and so of yes. course you know progressive postmodernism every worldview in some ways at least the um, pathological aspects of it the fundamentalists within it want to establish itself as the end of history right anything that comes after it is a regression 
right? So anything that, 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 that any attempt to go beyond progressivism is, is in, instinctively resisted and mm-hmm. characterized as a regression to a lower level of cultural uh, frame. Right, of course, yeah. Okay, so so the, the, the history, especially over the last, since 2020, over the last three years or so, uh, has uh, has been very much about a, a reconciliation of America's history, right? A reconciliation over the un, uh, unhealed wounds of slavery and Jim Crow, and and of course, so much of the progressive postmodern history uh, is is about uh, casting shame, uh, and, and in, in many cases, warranted shame on the misdeeds yeah. of the West in general and America in particular. And this has been exemplified by um, Hannah, Hannah Nicole uh, Smith's New York Times 1619 uh, uh, report, right, which has been pilloried in the media as being a false narrative of, of of distorting history, of being inaccurate, of being unscholarly. It's been defended. this is the 1619 project, right? 1619 project. It's it's been, and, but it's been pilloried in some, but it's been used often in academia as well, academic worlds as well. It's been used in educational circles. It's been influential as well. So it's been both, right? Right, and and it's it's caused a I think a fruitful for the most part um, national conversation that yeah. that that makes us realize that we haven't grown, we haven't done what we need to do to grow beyond these wounds, that they're still holding us back. Or and, and to be clear, the, the 1619 project, it's like the first, I think it's the first year, right, slaves came to America, right? So it's kind of the idea that the, 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 the kind of the sin of American, of America's founding slavery, the original sin of America started in 1619, and it's what's informed us ever since, sort of. That's well, kind not of, only uh, that, but that, that slavery was the foundation of America, of its economy, of its culture, that it was the driving. That we can't separate it from the, the, what, of, the essence of America. I mean, in other words, they, they want to make all of America. History kind of turn on slavery as the the sort of the driving on slavery, force. right? And you know the, some of the claims associated with it have, have been jumped on by more serious historians as being you know a, an ideological distortion. So okay, so so there's plenty that we could um, name about the 1619 project that we don't like or that's not good. But pulling back culturally and and putting the 1619 project in the context of the larger reckoning. Uh, with the sins of the past that's been driven by the you know the movement for um, for racial equality and and the 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 deep root of transcendence this kind of sense of greater than self-interest that has uh, motivated a, a significant part of of um, America's best and brightest people right many of America's elites uh, are, in, in a sense still caught up in what can be at least loosely compared to a kind of religious revival where deep meaning and, and deep solidarity and moral identity is found and invested in, um, you know, the, the notion of uh, America's shame, America's uh, crimes, America's ongoing uh, legacies of slavery, right? And there have been, you know, systemic waste, racism, white supremacy, many labels uh, that, that are, you know, the cudgels of shame that have been um leveled against American society, indicting it. Um, I think that uh, the, the even in the face of ideological distortion, I think that we can weather those criticisms, right, to, to um, in, in order to break out of the, the kind of almost stifling culture of the establishment of America, which was, you know, which 
progressive postmodern, that culture found itself growing out of that context in the 60s. From the beginning, what's what has been a common theme of uh, the ascendancy of this progressive uh, worldview in America has been um, the many ways in which uh, modernity and traditionalism, the previous worldviews of American history, deserve to be critiqued and questioned, and um, in some cases rejected, or at least yes. many the, the sins of America's past. So yes. this kind of larger project, this world historical project of questioning modernity, right? Questioning traditional values, questioning the narratives that uh, were were near and dear to American hearts, the narratives of patriotism, which yes, and the and American yeah. exceptionalism, the positive. Yeah. You know, we won World War II, we did all these great things, and right. and uh, that that's kind of that history that's being questioned, right? Right. What which uh, Tana Hesse Coates calls the uh, the childhood myth of our innocence, right? Right. <laughs> and so uh, it certainly, as we grow up, you know, the analogy of the adolescent who who grows uh, as becomes a teenager, sort of rejects the parents or views the parents with a jaundiced eye, but then after some more growth, some years later, usually comes around to respecting the parents and and reappreciating uh, that they are flawed humans and perhaps did their yeah. best, you know, as parents. Anyway. The, the, we're now in this period of adolescence as a, as a growing culture and the, the progressive culture um, that you and I have been embedded in, you know, throughout our lives has its own trajectory and its own goods. And one of those goods is, is giving us a sense of shame. In other words, a sense of contrition right. and humility regarding our history. Right. Um, but of course, a healthy shame, there can be a healthy shame. Right? Exactly. And, and so what's important to say is that, um, there's a difference between um, having a sense of shame for America's history and its misdeeds that go with being an American as an identity, right, and owning our origins and our history, and uh, being assigned personal individual guilt because of your identity, right? That's not yes. what I'm arguing is a form of healthy shame, right? Sort of none of us were around when many of these crimes that are now the subject of the shaming uh, took place. And, uh, you know, as Andrew Sullivan has written recently, uh, you know, I, I just got here. You can't blame me just because of my identity. Right. So right. so I'm distinguishing that. And I'm also saying that we could also see it on, on the side of pride. Right. In patriotism, we might be proud of Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln, but that doesn't mean that we personally take credit for their accomplishments. Right. We're yes. we're, we're we're proud but in this kind of general sense of cultural pride and, and we're not taking individual uh, pride for, for anything that happened in the past. So yeah. at the cultural level, right, that bracketing any kind of individual guilt and not including that as part of this conversation, we've had this narrative of pride, which has been the primary um, theme, you know, of much of the interpretation of American history over the past 200 years. And with progressivism, we now get the this discordant note of shame, which mm-hmm. the 19 project is something sort of exemplifies or symbolizes, right? The, mm-hmm. yeah. the big stick to shame America. So as I argue in the article, uh, the politics of pride and shame, that, that this is, uh, this is not all bad that we don't have to just double down on 1776, you know, or, or old style American patriotism to combat it. Uh, right. if, if we want to, uh, you know, in Gandhi's famous phrase, become the change that we want to see. We want to see a synthesis, something that that take uh, all of the cogent critiques of progressive postmodernism in stride and help 
use those to create a, a more inclusive cultural agreement structure whereby mm-hmm. we, can, um, we can have both pride and shame, that those two you know, seemingly challenging ideas or interpretations can work together and, and be part of the, uh, the, the functioning parts of this synthetic culture that we want to create. So in now, the now many people have sort of encountered this uh, with the with the edu- because progressivism has such influence in the academic world and and it's now sort of spread throughout the American educational system where it's there's lots of cultural battles being fought in legislatures and all that but 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 it's partially because that's where it has its ascendance that's where it has most institutional power is in the educational world that people are dealing with it with their kids and and you talk about in the article how you had your kid come home and and express some of this uh it will tell the story it's a good story in the in the article you talk about sure well okay so so if we were to recount america's uh crimes or misdeeds or or the primary uh um uh, events of shame for what we have to kind of embody and own if we're going to get to a synthesis mm-hmm. certainly slavery and the hundred years of jim crow uh segregation that followed are perhaps America's uh, um, most heinous crime, but right up there, perhaps arguably greater, is the um, the conquest of the Native American Indians and the destruction of their uh, yes. their cultures. You know that went Absolutely. with that, right? So, so those are the two uh, the two points of shame which I try to address in the article, and I I personalize it by starting with the shame that that is appropriate to feel regarding America's Western Western expansion and the conquest of Native Americans and the brutality and war crimes that went with that. Uh, it's particularly poignant. Uh, you and I both live in Colorado. Um, I live in an old house in, in Boulder built in 1879, you know, when the Arapaho dog soldiers were still roaming the prairie, not too far, right? So the American history mm-hmm living in in where we are in our location and you know in 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 all of a lot of the details that we take for granted so this the, the idea of western history has always been extremely fascinating to me my mother my english mother who you know immigrated to the united states uh that was her passion right she wanted to go out and walk on the oregon trail right and, and learn, <laughs> right. learn everything she could about american history especially uh, you know the the Western expansion. And so this is something that I have loved and studied deeply. And uh, the, 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 every detailed little vignette and an account of um, Native Americans, especially those who inhabited the West during the 19th century, um, is something that I've studied deeply. Uh, and um, I have, I've come to greatly appreciate, you know, the nobility and the kind of the lost cause of the Indians, you know, so how, you know, the, the, the Cheyenne and the Arapaho and, and, mm-hmm. and so many of these, uh, especially the, the Plains peoples, but the mountains peoples as well. I admire their culture. I'm attracted to it. There's something that they knew that we've lost. And so there's mm-hmm. a, sort of a deep romantic yearning, you know, even though I, I'm a first generation American, I still feel <laughs> connected to, um, you know, this lost, recently lost, um, you know, great story of America. And so atoning for that, atoning for the conquest of the Native Americans is, is a, an, a, I think, a necessary and, and, um, and, and required part of being a student of American history. Right. So uh, having said that, the, the story in the article that I tell is of uh, my 16-year-old, uh, you know, who's a, um, a sophomore in high school, how his uh, – he goes to a public school here in Boulder, and how his counselor 
she's also the art teacher in his high school, but his but his counselor, uh, you know, yeah. sending us emails, and and her email uh, includes a land acknowledgement, right? Which I've heard many of those. The, this is the um, the sort of the recountal the recount of uh, uh, the natives, uh, the Native Americans who lived um, on the land. You know, that as many uh, many progressives now. Uh, yeah. in, evoke a land acknowledgement at the beginning of any event as a kind of a prayer, you know, to, to get things started. This and, has become a thing, kind of like your pronouns, right? Well, sort right, of like, right, uh, right. you know, I, I live on, you know, uh, territory captured by the, you know, or destroy where we destroyed. So whether, you know, it's acknowledging that the, the acknowledging at least the, the shame of the history. Right. And, and um, in, in almost every land acknowledgement, either implicitly or explicitly, there's a condemnation of, of the Western expansion. Yeah. There's a message of shame that we are, we've stolen these people's lands and that, you know, we, we committed genocide on them and we're, you know, standing on their bones and that, you know, in, in some ways the implication is that our society is rotten to the core because of this, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. you know, brutal um, stolen foundation that we live on. So, okay. You know, uh, a, a certain amount of shame is undeniable. Right, the conquest of the of the Indians was brutal, and so let's own that and live with that full stop. And so it's natural that progressivism um, has has kind of come to that in a way. Uh, the, the land acknowledgments are a kind of a sacralization of the shame which uh, it colors our land, right? And which, yeah, right. You know, it's it's a necessary step in the decolonization movement of of an interpretation of American history. You know, a, 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 a primary tool in the hermeneutics of suspicion. Right. So so okay. So she sends home the counselor sends home an email, and at the end of every we've gotten you know probably thirty of them now. At the end of every email is the same land acknowledgement that says really at the every email. Every email. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind it's of you know it, it is a sacralization. It's sort of like saying Allah after every time you mention, you know, it was before. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like right, right. It's in praise of Allah or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So again, I'm not, I'm not here to ridicule it. I'm here to contextualize. <laughs> right? But, but allow me to yeah, I say a couple things about it. So uh, in her land acknowledgement, um, it might even be worth reading here uh, for purposes of, of uh, uh, getting specific about it. But uh, okay, let me, let me just read it um, really quickly. Um, yeah, she she talks about the, it, it, because the high school is located in Boulder, Colorado. She wants to contextualize it uh, in terms of the, the history of our town. Right. And the the um, the chief, Chief Niwat, who was the last Arapaho chief uh, yeah. who was native to the Boulder Valley. And so her land acknowledgement says we acknowledge that New Vista High School sits on land that was brutally taken from the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute tribal nations. While white settlers were originally peacefully welcomed by Chief Niwot into the Boulder Valley in the fall of 1858, he and his people were forced off the land and then attacked by Colonel John Chivington and his cavalry in the horrific Sand Creek Massacre on November 29, 1864. As educators dedicated to the work of equity and social justice, we must face this ugly truth before we can begin. So, there you, okay, go. you know, Sand yeah. Creek Massacre was definitely a war crime. Uh, it, it, it's, um, you know, it, it's it's part of the permanent catalog of America's, in, in, you know, the indelible shame of our misdeeds. And I'm, you know, well aware of this history and, and I try not to flinch, 
you know, from the horror of these truths. And I definitely want my 16 year old to know about the brutality and the, yes. um, you know, the crimes that were associated with the conquest of Colorado by, you know, the United States of America. Sure. Um, however, as I say in the article, um, the part that I uh, that that I object to is, of course, the implication of that, the one sidedness that points mm-hmm. to the fact that that sends the message to my sixteen year old that um, that uh, the American society that exists in the state of Colorado is rotten to the core because it's built on the foundations of you know theft and yes. genocide. Right. And yeah. so um, I, I want to counter that by saying, okay, let's have shame, let's full that, let's feel that fully. But let's also recognize that this is an ideologically motivated statement that is um, expressing the larger cultural telos of progressive postmodernism, which if if, if, it, if it weren't, if, if this antithesis didn't lead to some kind of further growth and further synthesis, then eventually it's going to demoralize any kind of uh, national solidarity that we may have and, and is in fact dangerous to the um, to the social solidarity necessary for democracy. So that doesn't mean that 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 the, the, the land acknowledgments like this, even from public officials like my high school folklore, yes. uh, needs to be ruled out or, or canceled or quashed. I'm saying, okay, let's hear that, but let's understand. Let's hear it. Yeah, but but it just but it's. I think the the problem is that it becomes one sided in its own way, completely one sided, and ultimately untrue in that one-sidedness, meaning it captures one piece of a truth, but it lacks the larger truth maybe of history and even of America, I guess would be the argument here. Right. So, so again, we're, we're th- this work of synthesis, this work of becoming the cultural change we want to see, yeah. the nuts and bolts of it involve holding two con- contradictory truths at the same time and yeah. allowing them to be in a relationship of, of challenge and support. And this yeah. is where this idea of, of a value polarity, like pride and shame. I mean, you know, Brene Brown has made her career talking about how we shouldn't feel ashamed. <laughs> and I respect that. <laughs> but, but I also want to point out that, that pride and shame can also create value, especially when, they're, uh, when they work together. Right. So, yeah. so that as our, our, um, our pride can condition our sense of shame by um, a- allowing us to appreciate that we have made progress and this progress is, is uh objectively valuable and then the, the, you know the, the shame can um can moderate our pride by us from becoming arrogant or, there's much more work yet to be done there's still gross yeah. inequality all kinds of pathologies and yeah. the deeper wounds of history have yet to be thoroughly healed right so we so we yeah. can say oh, well, let's create value around our interpretation of history in the service of a cultural synthesis that can save our democracy by using the two legs of pride and shame to true up our interpretation of history so that we can mm-hmm. own the shame, but we can also have, we don't allow that shame to bury our, our pride or, or make us embarrassed to be proud or have any kind of patriotism. Yeah. I mean, from, from, if we pull back in world history, um, I would argue that, that um, the emergence of America as a, as a, you know, an expression of liberal values and a democratic Republican in a world of, of uh, feudal kingships this is one of the most important and beneficial emergences in the history of humanity. Enormously positive, I would argue, yeah, yeah. If, even so, with all the downsides. Right, even, even with all the shameful uh, uh, deeds that went with it. So again, there are many points of pride that we can point to uh, as Americans, um, and I list those in the article. 
And then I also um, uh, point out that uh, in the same way that we can have both pride and shame in the, in the context of owning the history of, of Native Americans, we can also have pride and shame in, in owning our history of slavery and Jim Crow. And there I argue for um, some of the, the points of pride that all, of, all Americans can um, own and enjoy and feel identified with. All the points of pride of all the incredible um, uh, black people in American history who've contributed to uh, our nation, uh, you know, from uh, freedom fighters like Martin Luther King to, you know, incredible musicians and athletes. And, you know, and again, uh, um, and, and to the larger project of, of just, un, uh, you know, uh, like the movement toward greater equality at the, at the global level. I mean, they contributed enormously to that, too, even beyond this nation. Right. African Americans are part and parcel of American history in some very important ways that we can all, I said, sense feel proud of, regardless of the color of our skin. Mm-hmm. And, and towards the end of the article, I uh, cite and describe the work of um, the great black writer Albert Murray, who uh, uh, forwarded the idea of what he called the Omni American. Mm-hmm. And that instead of thinking of ourselves as African Americans or European Americans, while that is certainly okay, we should also at the same time recognize that to be an American is to be an omni-American, to, to, to have inherited uh, you know, the, the history that has been wrought by people of all the different you know, races and, and nationalities and ethnicities that have made American history, and that um, it, it, it doesn't erase individual identity or heritage to also allow uh, a sense wherein um, black people can be proud of, of the white founders and white people can be proud of all the incredible black contributors to American history, that we're right. all Americans and that this national right. identity in some ways uh, can transcend race, it can transcend ethnicity, right? In the same way that modernity transcends traditionalism by uh, uh, by drawing the circle of inclusivity wider to include people from different religions and different races, um, that's that's a major moral emergence in history. Uh, even though you know modernity doesn't get the job done of creating a utopia by any stretch, um, it's important as we work to to interpret our history and mold our identities in in a way that can both think in synthetic terms, right, holding two truths, contradictory mm-hmm. truths at the same time. Mm-hmm. And also work with the, the various worldviews that are vying for power in America. The synthesis can get, get its arms around all of that. And this synthetic yeah. thinking um, re- requires, I'd say, us to appreciate um, that, that, uh, um, that our history is something that, um, that, that, that is very important for us to frame correctly. Because yeah. it, it, in some ways, even if it constrains our cognition, right, if we're, if we're so... Sure wrapped up in shame, uh, you know, and that the progressive postmodern worldview is the only lens through which we can see our circumstances, that's going to severely limit our ability to make the world a better place, right? Or, yeah. or narrow that channel into a, uh, a trajectory of history um, that is in some ways, um, although there's still plenty of work to be done, although there's still plenty of postmodern consciousness to spread in the world, we can also see the beginning of the end of progressive postmodernism's trajectory, not that it's going to um, disappear as a major block of American culture, but we can see now as it's maturing and gaining power that it is beginning to perpetrate pathologies which were not yeah. as uh, evident or threatening prior 
to its empowerment. And so yeah. that, again, is, is a positive thing in that it signals that there's a next step, that, that progressive postmodernism is not the end of our cultural development, and that in, indeed the, the rejectionistic, antithetical spirit of it uh, is something that is, it is it's an, an important and a necessary step uh, that presages the next potential step, which is a synthesis, which can heal much of our uh, extreme polarization and perhaps even lead, lead to a new golden age. Well, I hope I, I, that's, I think that's a great way to look at it. And I think that because it, it feels like the conversation has become so polarized in society. I think sometimes, you know, I, you know, you and I follow these intellectual currents probably more closely than most do, but you know, if, and, and social media is obviously not the culture as a whole, but it sometimes does characterize some of the major figures and the, who are influencing the culture as a whole. And if you, you follow some of those conversations, the, the level of polarization around these issues and the level of which each side seems to have doubled down, you know, <laughs> not as a, it's like the opposite of the synthesis. You get people doubling down on the cultural gravity of either American pride or American shame as, and a kind of, you know, that, that, that these are the ways to go. And I think when I think about these issues, another thing I, I, I feel like how to, and, and you express, you, you capture some of this well, it's like, how to, how do we, how do we relate to history period? How do we relate to the evolution and development of history? And, and one of the dangerous things I think is if we relate to history as, as just these, you know, just the, you know, it, 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 in, in terms of, of, of our, of our current world, you know, if we relate to people in history as if they just, they failed, we have to succeed. We have to fix everything they did badly. You know, it's just like, and we don't see history in terms of its own process, you know, that, uh, there's this kind of a historical view that can take over that, that, that makes people think that we just have to recreate the right view now. And so, uh, and it's almost this kind of uh, both slightly cynical view of history and also kind of maybe utopian view of what we could accomplish if we just sort of recreate, fix everything now in the terms that we'd like. And so often when we try to fix everything now, you know, it's so easy to make things work. It's, a, you know, so many historical efforts to fix everything now, you know, have right. actually turned into disasters. And I think understanding that, like, and I thought, you know, as you said, we can appreciate the shame of our relationship to the Native Americans. It's a deep shame. I'm sure we're going to be continuing to learn more and more about it for the next de for decades to come. The the depth of what happened there, and we can appreciate the pain of it. But you know, history didn't start, you know, in 1492 or in you know 1619 or in 1776. You know, the, and the deeper you understand history, you understand that you know, it, it it's been bad. Like I, I don't know, you know. It, it may have been the worst thing in the world, you know, what happened to the, the Native Americans in Boulder in whenever that was. But, you know, how did they get to that land and who took that land from them? Did they take that land from anyone? You know, it's like when you, you keep going back, it, it doesn't always it's not like everything was great before then or there were no wars or battles between Native American tribes before then or there was no slave, you know, no slavery before 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 1619 i was just reading uh, i've been interested in the russia ukraine thing so i've been reading about the history of russia and the history of ukraine and it's just crazy i mean the the level of pain and suffering and disaster and conquering and massacre and oh my god it just goes on and on you, you know so we have to place we can't have an ahistorical view of this world this didn't all start with american history um, we have to see 
are things, have we been able to move things forward? Are things better than they have been in history? And we can't just wave our hand and change history in a moment and pretend that we can correct it and that everyone else is, has failed where we can succeed. You know, it's like it's it, the making things evolve. The evolution of history is this delicate process. And when we understand that, I feel like we can better integrate these two poles in our understanding of our, of our own past. Sure. Well, one of the things that, I mean, let me just say amen to that. One of the things that you and I are both working toward uh, the advancing and the popularization of is what we're calling the developmental perspective, right? It's, it's an evolutionary perspective that can see how uh, almost everything in our world is in the process of becoming, you know, evolving, developing, mm-hmm. and that yeah. this development is uneven, that not everyone lives in the same time in history. We, 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 in a sense, become seduced by a spell, uh, what you sometimes call the spell of solidity, whereby yeah. we live in this in this fixed situation and that the past is somehow irrelevant. And then yeah. when you see, in a sense, the past erupting in Ukraine, right, where, yeah. where it's almost like the, the, the history of 300 years ago is now being reenacted there. Yeah. That's because, uh, uh, you know, I think it's it's fair to observe that Russia – has perhaps, at least in the last 200 years, absorbed more aggression and more brutality in terms of the attempts to conquer, you know, uh, conquer it, beginning with Napoleon, right? And then, you know, World War One and Bolshevism, and then, of course, the Nazis in World War II. These wounds into the yeah. national identity of Russia are deep, and in yeah. some ways they are, um, you know, they, they, they hold it back, right? Russia is still in this you know, time, this pre-modern time of history where imperialism and colonialism and conquest and national pride are at the, the front of their consciousness. Yeah. And this need for national pride is so deep, partially because of these deep wounds, these tens of millions of people that, that have been slaughtered in the process of these wars, which we've now, you know, in the West gone beyond for the most part, right? We don't live in that time in history. We've, we've, yeah. we've, um, we've gone beyond that and hopefully we won't have to be dragged back to that. But certainly that's still erupting in, in, in Russia where in Ukraine, a significant portion, portion of the population is, is um, striving to adopt modernity and, and uh, achieve the accomplishments of modernity, including uh, liberal freedoms, rule of law, economic prosperity. You know, they're in that emerging phase, but that, of course, flies in the face of the need to consolidate and, and to heal this previous traditional stage, which Russia is still in. You know, again, yeah. this is, we're, 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 yeah. you know, we're talking to, taking a 30,000-foot view. But yeah, again, sure. that perspective is really worthwhile because it can help us at least have some sympathy um, and, and recognize that even though, you know, Putin is a, a monster in, in many ways, it's also important to recognize the the ways in which Russia is wounded and and still has to act out these historical pathologies, uh, and we have to find a way that that can um, you know honor their sovereignty and their na- nationality and their internal process, and also um, you know prevent them from perpetrating genocide yeah. on Ukrainians. Right? How to do that is, is certainly um, not something I have any bright ideas about, but. <laughs> you know the uh the, the the this that history is moving that we are in a domain of evolution and yeah. that we're now coming to understand this evolution in a new way the, the evolution of culture and consciousness um it shows us how 
the energy, if you will, or the magnetism of, of a sense of transcendence, right? What people value, that that motivates them deep down and that there's these different currents of transcendence. Each worldview, each step of history has its own definition of greater than self-interest or transcendence. Yeah. And that these are pointing in, in you know, different dialectically opposed directions, but that's how things develop. This is yeah. one of the big insights of the developmental perspective is yeah. that it shows us how human history is not a, a deterministic organism, but it, it is a system and it does follow in certain ways some of the um, well-established patterns of systemic development that have been laid down in every domain of evolution, cosmological, biological, yeah. Yeah. and that the, 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 the systemic growth occurs by steps, by stages. And yeah. so we see that it doesn't happen all at once. <laughs> right. Right. And so some in of fact, our- when we, and when we try to make it happen all at once in our particular view of it, and a lot of people have done that, you know, it sometimes that can make things worse. And there's something about letting history breathe a little bit, you know, letting things develop. And of course we want things to be better. That's the, that's a great impulse. We want things to be better. We want things to be, but, but I also feel like getting the message out there that we don't have to double down on one of these visions of American history. You know, you don't have to pick a side here. You know, you can have these two truths live in your consciousness. You can have the fact that we have come very far and there's still much things we're failing at and we have a lot farther to go. Those two truths can live in your own consciousness, you know? It's like, I I have this great example, if I can go off just to tell this story for the example. It's just like, you know, my own history. I I think of, you know, it's a good example because um, or I think it's a good example, but you know, I grew up in Oklahoma, which of course has this very deep relationship with Native Americans. That's where they are all forced to go, right? So there's a deep pain in the in the culture in that in in Oklahoma you, you, because of that you know land of the red men. That's what Oklahoma means, and so that was very much part of the growing up. You're you know aware of that to some degree now, probably not near uh, as much as we as we could have been or should have been, but at least in in my era of growing up. It was in the 80s and late 70s uh, when I sort of became came of age. And, and uh, there was some effort you could feel to, to try to come to terms with this, probably inadequate, fumbling, in, you know, not complete by any means. But that was the beginning of that era in which we were really trying to come to terms with the Native American, that history in Oklahoma with that. And now Oklahoma wasn't part of the Civil War, so we didn't think of race as being so central uh, obviously, it was part of the, you know, it's in the it's kind of southern area of the country. So race has been critical to all parts of the country, but maybe not like it is in in the those are below the Civil War and the Mason-Dixie line, uh, below the Mason-Dixie line, the Civil War. But, you know, what I didn't learn about when I grew up, the Tulsa race massacre, one of the worst race massacres in American history. Ne- never learned about it. Not at all. <laughs> totally missed it. Right. I mean, Shame that's a huge yeah. gap. And of course, so you can look back and say, well, of course, we, that that's crazy. And that's horrible. And it is. But at the same time, you know, I was talking to, to someone and they're like, but, and you can tell they're relating to my, that period. Like we must have been in complete denial of, of, of all of these issues. And yes, it's true. We were in denial, but they were that like the project of that time was to come to, you could tell was to try to come to terms with more of our relationship with native Americans, which was positive, of course. So it's like, you have to have these two truths at one time. We, there was an evolution. There was a development. We, there was a movement forward in our understanding of our own history and integrating those realities. And there were tremendous gaps. And I'm sure that's still true to some extent today. So we kind of have to, we can't just, say, oh, it was all bad in the 80s, or it was all bad in the 50s, or it was all bad in the 20s. You know, it's like, we're, 
we have to let history breathe and evolve and good things were happening then. And yet there were big gaps. So it's like both those can be true. And yet that seems a hard thing to appreciate, to let history evolve, to let that process take place. It's like we, we, and I feel like that, that, that message has a hard time resonating um, in, in, in culture. And yet I wish it, I wish it would more. I want to give that to people more. Both can be true. Both can be true. Sure. Well, that's, that's in some ways the, the bright promise of uh, this developmental perspective, right? Which we yes, have. Exactly. Uh, and, and it allows us to, uh, by taking a developmental perspective, it allows us to kind of step outside of the, um, you know, the political projects that we've been recruited into, not that we want to give up our loyalties or, or uh, you know, invalidate the important work that each particular worldview is doing to make the world a better place. But, but I mentioned polarities, how values and things that create value naturally cohere in polar sets, right? We talked about pride and shame as an example of that kind of polarity. In some ways, we, we might, if we dig down within the political psychology of American culture at the moment, we can begin to recognize that there's a deep polarity that characterizes uh, uh, human history really from the beginning. And this is the, the twin impulses, which are in a, in a polar relationship of uh, the challenging each other. Um, we might even call it the prime political polarity of fixing what's wrong, wanting to fix what's wrong on one side. And wanted to preserve yes. what's right on the other, yes. right? And so this is this this natural polarity. It's almost heritable, in the sense that people. There's been some interesting research showing that people are born with, with proclivities, just like they're born, you know, male or female, or obviously somewhere in between. Um, but the, the, this this general characteristic of of um, you know male and female uh, uh, biology, we can see the same thing in. Um, you know, what we might call progressive and conservative political psychology, and that mm-hmm. people are naturally more oriented towards fixing what's wrong, and others are naturally more oriented to preserving what's right. And the two sides often have a hard time uh, misunderstanding each other. Yeah, and that's sure. because, the, you know, like any human situation, um, some of the most visible or loudest voices are those of the who are taking the extreme position, right? So the extremes yeah. of both of these natural pr- proclivities of this prime political polarity, um, the, the extremes naturally want to vanquish the other, right? So the the fix what's wrong uh, mentality, yes. Yes. Wants to, you know, like the French Revolution, burn it all down, wipe everything away. If we're going to fix yeah. what's wrong, we have to start from scratch, right? And get yeah, rid it, of didn't, it didn't work out very well in yeah, that particular revolution, even though, even though it accomplished something that was critical too, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, of course, that's a pathology, and it's threatening, especially people who want to preserve what's right. But of course, yeah. they the preserve what's right folks have um, noisy extremists as well, in the sense that they want to, like William F. Buckley said, they want to stand athwart history, yelling "stop!" Right? They yeah, want to. That's such a perfect quote. expression of that. They want to imagine a golden age that we, you know, fallen from. Right, like yes. 1950s or something, and, yes. and you know that's pathological because it, 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 if taken to the extreme, it thwarts all efforts to fix what's wrong. Yes. So just stepping back and being able to see this polarity in both strong and weak uh, appearances in our political discourse, in our cultural identities, uh, allows us to again adopt a frame which is it allows for a synthesis to occur. 
right? Again, we want to become the synthesis. We want to we want to think synthetically. In order to think synthetically, we have to think developmentally. We have to mm-hmm. see things in process and see them mm-hmm. as these steps. See how the steps are related to each other. Uh, that that the differences are these polarities and these polarities generate value pride and shame especially when brought together create value grievance and gratitude liberty Mm -hmm. and equality any polarity we might name uh is is in a way a description of a of both a bridge and a separation it's separating Mm -hmm. the different cultures the different steps of development but it's also a way that uh, taking together the conflict that they naturally um demonstrate can actually be worked with as a powerful tool for creating value, right? So, so yeah. shame can create a certain degree of value on its own. Pride can uh, create some value on its own, but by themselves, unmoderated by each other, they often lead to some kind of pathological expression, either you know jingoistic or xenophobic, uh, blind patriotism, or yeah. um, you know progressive shame. That sees uh, that sees no good in anything that has come from the American nation, and of course these are you know extreme. These extreme characterizations are not embodied by most, but they're nevertheless rife in our culture. We can see all and they're influential. In they're case. influential out there, right? Yeah. In certain segments of American culture. Yeah, and that's what's underlying the pol- polarity. Is there's a there's a war. There's a culture war, as we've talked about um, extensively. And this culture war uh, could bury us or it could stimulate us to grow into a better version of ourselves. And, and the opportunity to do that, to make, to make uh, good out of this conflict, is in helping, uh, helping the pressure, you know, the, the, the um, unsatisfactory life conditions, the evolutionary restlessness that this state of malaise in American culture uh, is generating, allow that to stimulate us to to adopt what is this next step of opportunity in front of us, which is a synthesis. And that requires a developmental perspective, which requires, requires an ability to recognize these polar forces in operation in the very structure of development itself. Amen. Amen. And, and, you know, one of the things that often strikes me about this, and I'd love to get your take on this is like, you know, like the, the cultural dynamics at work that, you know, sort of, help that move forward or prevent it. And I feel one of the interesting dynamics at work here is that, you know, we've had this sort of surge of progressivism, you know, in the last few years here, uh, definitely with the pandemic, with George Floyd, and, and certainly the social justice, what I call the social justice element of, of the progressive culture. It's not the only element of progressive culture. There's environmentalism, there's other things, but that sort of has surged forward in the world. And the 1619 Project partially came out of that surge and its influences come out of that surge. And and, uh, and, and, and some, ex, you know, some, some more extreme visions of, of that have come out of that surge and maybe some healthy, some unhealthy. But one of the things I often find is like, it's like, you know, like if you, if you think of the boomer generation, you're sort of, you're sort of maybe very late boomer, Steve, and I'm sort of Gen X. 
um, or you're maybe in between actually, but, uh, I was born but, during the Eisenhower administration. So I think I qualify as a boomer. Okay. Just, <laughs> okay, you're kind of, I think of you as late, very late boomer, but you, so you, you can speak to, but I was thinking, you know, it was with the, especially with the early boomer generation, you know, so much happened in terms of that surge of progressivism and, and interest in postmodern progressivism, all that with the late sixties and seventies. We, of course, that was the fount of that, that era and so much moved forward in that era. But that was an era in which modernism stood astride the culture with an incredible amount of influence and dominance, right? And, and traditionalism too, and that religious sense of the America was still a religious nation in that, that era. And sometimes I feel like that era still lives in, 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 in that generational mindset. So in that generational mindset, sometimes when I talk to boomers or when I talk, you know, I, I, it's especially progressive ones, it's almost as if all of this is just, it's like, it's hard to imagine a world in which progressivism itself has become dominant and powerful, which is a whole different dynamic culturally. It's like, they still imagine that this is all good. This is all great. Everything's good. There could be no extremism that would be negative in terms of the, the surge of this, this, these ideas and this culture. This is all just positive because like in their, in the mind, they're still living in a culture where modernism is so dominant. It could never be overthrown. You know, it could never be uh, where there's those traditional religious values are so embedded. That is the America of their, of their youth almost, but that's not the culture we live on. Modernism is under, is under a, a different kind of attack now, Progressivism is much stronger, so we have to be more wary of its of its influence and aware of its downsides much more than we had to be in 1978 or 1972 or whenever that was, or even when I grew up. And it's 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 deconstructed the culture in a whole. We live in a completely different cultural construct now, and I and I think that requires us to have a new awareness of these dynamics. Sure. Well, well, again, that adolescent uh, growing up analogy works pretty well. I mean, yeah. when you're, when, you know, it's easy to be a rebel at 17 when you're com- comfortably ensconced in your parents' middle class home. Right? Exactly. And, exactly. Uh, um, um, and, and, you know, when you grow up and go out in the economy and maybe want to start a family, then you realize that that at least for most people who were not um, you know, trust Safarians, <laughs> they realize that, uh, you know, that, that, that some of that, that, that they took for granted is something yes. that they have to reproduce and be responsible. Exactly. And exactly. so modernity, again, we can be, we, we, we can, we can take a, a unvarnished look at the unsustainability and the, the, um, you know, the historical crimes of modernity. And we can certainly be uh, uh, dissatisfied with all of the pathologies of modernity, you know, which we could tick off, um, and yet, the, this next step, this this maturation of our culture, this sy- synthetic perspective, which is on the horizon of history, which will hopefully you know come to be be more prominent in American culture, recognizes the need to what, revalorize modernity, to recognize that it's it's not a utility that just provides yeah. our wealth without us thinking about it, and is you know governed by some higher authority, and it, you know it's not fragile or vulnerable. Yeah. It can be undermined. It can go away. It's not a, a given of history. Most of history didn't contain the wealth and success and prosperity of modernity. Most of history. It's good well, to know that. Well, and one of the one of the um, illusions or the maybe even ideological tropes of of the enemies of modernity are to assert that that pre modern conditions um, were somehow you know better than than yeah. the 
modernity, right? And we see that especially with, I mean, on my article on the pride and shame, I got several comments that said, you know, you're asserting that conditions have been improved for Native Americans, but in fact, they haven't been. Things are worse than ever. And I just have to scratch my head at the ignorance of that. I mean, you think about scientific medicine alone, right? Yeah. Or, or, you know, the fact that the vast majority of Native Americans have been assimilated, you know, uh, into the larger American society. And even those who live in the worst poverty on reservations, um, you know, still enjoy the, 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 the gifts of connectivity and rule of law and their kids can still go off to college. Indeed, their kids are highly prized by college admissions uh, yes. everywhere, right? <laughs> So, so again, I don't want to say it's all roses for the Native Americans. No, but, but like, it doesn't mean everything was great before 1619 or before Descartes or before, or before agriculture or whenever your preferred version of a, of a previous golden, a Garden of Eden is. It, it, it wasn't. It, you know, it's the it. Utes themselves, right? it's worth saying this, right? The, the Utes who are in the land yeah. acknowledgement by our high school counselor who were the mountain peoples, you know, of the American yes. West, beautiful, you know, very, you know, uh, noble and, and, you know, worthy of, of praise and, and remembrance. Yes. But you also go on Wikipedia and, and read about how they practiced child sacrifice and buried alive children with the dead chief when he was buried. I mean, you know, that that's oh pretty horrific, right? Oh so again, you know, the, the, not every uh, Native American tribe practiced child sacrifice, but many did. Many practiced ritualized. Well, I, I always read about the Navajos. You know, Navajos are this beautiful, you know, often considered this peaceful tribe in New Mexico. And then there's and there was a beauty to the Navajo culture, I'm sure. But even when we came, uh, we being the Westerners from the Europe, uh, uh, and at the time the the whole culture was based on things they had already gotten from the Spanish. So the whole culture was already completely transformed by their encounter with the Spanish from, from 200, 100 years earlier or 200 years earlier. So it wasn't original. And, and then what you realize is the Navajos actually came and stole the land from the the previous inhabitants, uh, yeah, probably the the leftovers of the Anastasia of the time, they're in constant war with youths. I think at the time, you know, just the fact that you just go back and back. It's fascinating. It's actually really interesting history. It's fascinating history. But but there's not a golden age in it. Well, the romanticization is part of the ideological uh, smokescreen, right? That that is in service of the fix what's wrong by wiping away or completely trashing everything that came before, especially modernity, because that's the main enemy. And, uh, you know, again, if, if, if we recognize that people are living in different times of history, as we spoke about with regard to Ukraine, um, the, 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 every people, every race, every ethnicity was dragged out of the Stone Age with brutality, right? That the end of the Stone Age is brutal for all of us. It just happened in different times in history to our various yeah. ancestors. Yeah. And the fact is, is that, um, you know, that the Native Americans have been brutally con con conquering each other for 10,000 years. That doesn't excuse the war crime um, no. of, of that has accompanied, you know, the, the final conquest that ended all future conquests. But it yeah. does it does make us face the fact that life in the Stone Age was, you know, nasty, brutish and short and that um, that it, it, it can't prevail in a in a globalizing world. And while we can we can hold two truths, we can be ashamed of, of the way the Native Americans treated and recognize that if we were a more moral society, we would have um, reconciled with them in, in a far more just way. Perhaps a model would be the way that the uh, English colonists in New Zealand, uh, uh, you know, worked with the Maori. You know, they had war, they had brutality, but the Maori 
uh, received a much better deal as uh, you know indigenous peoples than mm. peoples of Western America. So clearly, mm. we can have regret and we can be ashamed. That shame is part of our permanent record and part of our permanent you know chagrin yeah. anytime we try to be proud or have a sense of patriotism. But these things don't cancel each other out. In the same yes. way, fixing what's wrong is necessary, preserving what's right is necessary. Um, and we're going to thwart both of those worthy efforts if we allow one to um, try to cancel the other. Uh, again, this doesn't mean that we're trying to create a place of false rest, like some kind of static compromise in the middle that just takes yeah. a little both. It's a dynamic process. It's ongoing, like making progress with two legs. We embrace our shame. We'll recite our land acknowledgement. But then we'll also uh, be proud to be Americans and recognize that um, the gifts of modernity are something worth not only honoring and preserving, but as we see in Ukraine, actually fighting for. Yeah. And, and the peace and prosperity of modernity, rather than trying to you know, fight against it or pretend it was some disaster of history, which is just is bizarre to me, you know, they actually allow us to start to have the co context in which, like you said, like progressivism can emerge, and we can actually make effort to to transcend some of the wounds of history and to get out of the wounds of history. I mean, it's it's sort of the ultimate privilege to be in a place where we can look at the wounds of history without having suffered them ourselves. <laughs> that we can, like, because in most periods of history, you you were, you may be a victim of you looked at the wounds of history because you were a victim of them yourself, and it was very hard to get out of that identity. We can actually get out of that identity because many of us haven't been such so strongly victimized by history many people still are but it's it's kind of a great privilege to be able to have the priest and posterity where more and more of us can look at the, the that palette of history and 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 try to try to overcome it try to move things forward try to make amends try to to actually uh to to achieve achieve some kind of healing but we can't do that without the without the gifts of modernity that those are all that's all built on the gifts of modernity yeah. Well, ultimately, this evolutionary perspective, this developmental perspective um, does point, it leads kind of directly to a kind of a cosmic view, right? A cosmic view that recognizes evolution as a, this 13.8 billion year narrative odyssey um, that we embody each of us, right? The periodic table of elements, right? The, the biological tree of life. All of those things are actively working now in the present to create this reality that we have, despite all the turmoil in the world, we have a greater opportunity to, to do good and fix what's wrong than ever before. And, and one of the best ways we do that is evolve our consciousness and this evolution of consciousness to the synthetic developmental view, this, this omni-inclusive view, um, you know, ultimately helps us appreciate how history, despite its ugliness and tragedy and, and, uh, you know, all the shameful things that have happened, all the suffering, um, that, that this is in a way the universe's greatest art, that the history of humanity, you know, from a cosmic view can be seen as this incredible passion play, right, of, of, yeah. of uh, tragedy and horror and beauty and glory. And yeah. how um, that cosmic perspective, as interpreted at least by some spiritual paths, uh, uh, connects with the message of redemption that can help yeah. us appreciate that even the suffering and even the horrors um, you know, that, that viewed from a, a sufficiently cosmic altitude that all things yeah. do work together for good. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that person, and, and, and to become aware of that, to have the opportunity to, to lift our eyes up, to become aware of that kind of that scope, 
of, 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 of being human in that context, to identify with that in some small way, even as we identify with other aspects of who we are, our culture, our nation, our, but to, to have some part of our consciousness given over to identify with that trajectory and to be able to kind of recognize that and to have the opportunity, how many moments in history, how many people really have the opportunity to do that with our, with our understanding of history, with our understanding of science and all these aspects that have come together to, to allow us to, to in some sense identify as that too and to, and to act from that perspective and to think of that, to have that opportunity. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's an extraordinary thing and something that, that I hope we can, uh, we can live and, and honor and communicate to more people and, and, and to appreciate all of the other dynamics, not as some distant thing that we don't appreciate or that we don't feel deeply, but that they all kind of participate in this larger, this larger vision, this larger context. And we can, and, and who knows what we could accomplish uh, from that, point of view who knows how we can move things forward who knows how uh, how our future descendants who more, when more and more people are are thinking in those terms who know who knows the you know it, the chance of we've already seen the last 200 years how how history can change history is not just one damn thing after the other it can yeah. move forward it can evolve and yeah. who knows what might be possible yeah and and being keen just in the same way that we might want to develop our aesthetic sense Right to recognize beauty, you know, with all of our senses, where where it appears, and and be be nurtured by that spiritually. Um, we can also develop our our ability to recognize where value has indeed been created, and not to discount that, or recognize that we ha- sort of have a duty if we're going to use value, you know, the value of modernity, the value of traditionalism, the value of progressivism, the value of all elements of American culture, which we are actively using in, a, in the consciousness and in the material circumstances of our lives, um, that we have a duty to, um, uh, to be, in a sense, uh, appreciators of that value. That's mm-hmm. an important kind of cornerstone of this, this very important perspective of preserving what's right, right? Yeah. Preserving the value that's already been created, even while we understand that, that creative destruction of some of that value, right? The antithesis, the rejection, the questioning that the hermeneutics of suspicion, you know, advanced by progressivism are not all uh, jaundiced, that some of them, that some of that cultural exercise in questioning mm-hmm. um, is, is actually necessary for us to uh, not get stuck in just reifying yeah. the status quo or only concerned, be concerned about preserving what's right. Because in, in an evolving universe, um, you know, if you're not moving forward, you're ultimately regressing, right? So we can't we can't just stand athwart history yelling stop. We have to embrace it. Yes. But but nevertheless, there is now emerging, and it's the most exciting thing ever. I think you and I, in some ways, have dedicated our lives to it in different ways. Is that this opportunity for this next step, this opportunity for synthesis? You know, that what goes with it is not just pragmatic political strategies. But it actually solves what um, some writers we know have called the the meaning crisis, right? That this cosmic view, uh, what we might call the the spirituality of the beautiful, the true, and the good, right? Or or evolutionary spirituality, recognizing that value is real. It has has features that are not just private and subjective, but that there's a larger trajectory. We don't have to go um, all the way. Again, Mm-hmm. Many of the arguments that we're touching on have been taken to extreme and appropriately criticized for being immature. Yeah. But that doesn't yeah. mean we can't um, rediscover some of those truths and carry them forward in a more synthetic context 
that can moderate their excesses and get them to work together. And so the meaning crisis, right, the fact that this the, the transcendent vision that can unite us, the sense of common good that can restore at least part of a, the, the common truth that we need to reclaim, that that, that is directly connected to our ability to recognize and interpret history from a cosmic perspective and appreciate that we're um, that we are uh, engaged in something that's that's by fits and starts headed in the direction of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Awesome. We uh, that I that that's inspires me to say a bunch more, but I think that's a beautiful place to leave it. And uh, let's maybe let's let's end it with that. Um, and and, and I'm in for for that perspective. And uh, appreciate you coming on and appreciate this talk. And and let's let's do it again in a few months. And maybe we could delve a bit more deeply into some of the current events. And by that time, we may know more about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine and understand it better. But, uh, there's so much happening in this world that needs this perspective. Uh, it's great to be able to spend some time to talk about it. Thank you, Carter. Again, as always, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you. I have a couple of articles in the works, you know, it'll be some months before those are, are complete probably, but perhaps when those are, you know, they, they elaborate and expand on some of the themes that we've talked about, the, the developmental perspective, the meaning crisis. So uh, once those are published, um, love to come back on and talk to you further about these, uh, you know, these fascinating ideas. Great. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you, Carter. I want to thank Steve McIntosh for joining me today on the podcast. And you can find the article we discussed today, The Politics of Pride and Shame, at The Developmentalist at developmentalist.org. Um, I'll also put notes to it uh, in, the, in the show description. Um, and once again, a reminder that you can always follow this podcast more closely by signing up for my newsletter, which is also called Thinking Ahead. And you can sign up for that at carterphipscom slash newsletter. All right. Thanks for joining us today and uh, look forward to next time.